Issues, a podcast about leadership management and reminding myself that it's still emotional labor, even if I enjoy it. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. According to Dusty, I am aggressively, marginally effective. <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking with Dusty Pierce, Director of Service Engineering at Slack. Hi, Dusty. Hi, how is everybody today? Doing pretty well. We are well. glad you're here. This is exciting. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's a seminal moment It's for nice me. to kick off the new year uh, with, uh, with such a leader as you to speak with. So um, you. what's your path to leadership and management and where you are now been like? What have you been doing the last however many years? Well, the details of my life are inconsequential. No. Um, but if you insist, <laughs> I totally insist. Wait, wait, wait that that can be the end of the podcast right now. That yeah. we just stop oh, because it's sort matter. of the whole point of the rest of this is the details of your life, Dusty. Sorry, oh, excuse yeah. me, excuse me. <laughs> so, uh, my path to leadership. You know, my mom is super duper proud of my middle management career. She tells all yes. her friends about her her middle manager son and. In IT, and so I think most yes. people will tell you that their path to middle management is not necessarily like their childhood dream, and it's somewhat accidental. And certainly, mine is probably very similar to theirs. I think for me, the the story for me is kind of a combination of two things. One is coaching sports, and I started that at a very young age. I was the head coach of a swim team when I was 16. Was my first kind of head coaching gig, and then the wow. second was kind of my obsession with fixing things like twiddling with things and and certainly my father was in the computing business and so that naturally led to computers and so the two things coaching and computers kind of led together and that's kind of how I ended up where I am now my uh, actual working career after college started um, at Genentech and at the time uh, I was I had studied molecular biology and I was at Genentech and it was 1994 I think and the internet was becoming a big thing, and uh, Netscape came by uh, Genentech, and they said, hey, we're doing this cool new thing. It's called an intranet, and it uses this thing called HTML, and you, you're a progressive company. You think it's going to be awesome. So send someone from each department over, and we're going to teach them how to do this. And so, of course, my boss says, Pierce, you're good with spreadsheets. You go. And so I said, okay, whatever. So I went to this thing, and I fell in love. I was like, holy moly, this is what I want to do with my life. And so I came back to Genentech. And said, hey, I want to be a web programmer. And I went to IT. And the best thing that ever happened is there's a manager in IT at Genentech who says, Dusty, you don't want to work here. He's like, you know, you, you want to go out and join a consulting group and, you know, really kind of learn your craft. This is new. This is going to be huge. And uh, so I did. I joined a consulting firm as best advice I ever got. And really kind of fired in the crucible of consulting at a very young age uh, in the 90s, you know, during the dot-com run-up. And that was a really interesting experience because the, the, it's really high pressure delivery, right? You have deadlines. Um, I'm out there writing like numbered requirements and also writing the architecture and helping guide the, you know, the, the construction of the software. So why that's important is I think I really got into the, the process of delivering software to humans. And, and that involves lots of things of understanding who the people are and what they care about, understanding the people who make it and what they care about and matching those two things together. And I think that I did that so much and under such kind of like high pressure situations that I just kind of, I think, started to feel like I was good at it. And so eventually was asked to do management and I was kind of doing um, that, that manager 
programmer pendulum thing where you would do a manager and you'd miss building things and then you would say, okay, I'm going to go back and build things because I miss building them. And eventually, you know, most software firms look around and they're like, who, who can talk to humans and is reasonably presentable? And it's like, Pierce, you know, you, you know, you do the leadership. And it's like, oh, God damn it. So reasonably presentable. Yeah, reasonably, <laughs> yeah, like, reasonably really? presentable. Well, yeah, okay. Complete misanthropy <laughs> is the kind of criteria. Uh, so, you know, and I think for me, and, and I've listened to stories of other managers, specifically in the tech industry, was this idea that if I didn't do it, then somebody else would do it. And I really wanted things to be done the way that I felt like they needed to be done or the way I would want to be managed, right? And so there was a strong thread there. And, and for me, you know, a lot of it had to do with going back to my athletic coaching experience. Um, at a young age, coaching swimming, coaching water polo. Um, it was a strong influence for me as both like, you know, setting the strategy for winning at a team level, but also helping individuals get better and get their best time or be the best that they can be for the team. And so there's this duality of like macro and micro that I really appreciated. And so I ended up doing a lot of managering, but still kind of penduluming, penduluming back and forth in startups and in healthcare. And then uh, most recent history is in oh, how many years ago? eight years or so ago, I was asked to run engineering for babycenter.com. And that's one of the oldest websites in the world. It was founded in 1995. And wow. uh, when I got there, it's, it's owned and run by J&J. And when I got there, there were developers there who had been working on the website for like 15 years. Wait, it was J&J being Johnson and Johnson? Johnson. Johnson and Johnson, yeah. yeah so yeah. I, worked, I worked for J&J. I was a J&J employee. And so um, my job was to kind of rejuvenate, modernize, kind of get engineering going, brought into the 21st century. And that was a lot of fun. And it was probably the biggest managing gig. I was a director then. It was the biggest gig I had, about 60 people. And really trying to like drive and shape a department and figure out a culture that, again, it goes back to like, wh where would I want to work? Right. Like if I was being recruited and someone was saying, hey, do you want to work here? I would ask these questions. And if the answers were yes, then that's where I would want to work. And so it was really centered around engineer uh, empowerment and servant leadership on the management side. And it was great. We did all kinds of work. We we got agile cooking really well. We really introduced lean methodology. Eric Reese came and we were one of his first customers for doing consulting. And it was a lot of fun, but at some level, it felt like the the headwinds of giant corporate America to kind of agile Silicon Valley culture were there. Like it just didn't felt like it was going to get over. And so I left Johnson and Johnson when a startup called me and said, "Hey, will you come help us turn around this startup?" And that was Life Three Sixty, and that was a consumer internet startup, mobile app company that does family location sharing. And that was a lot of fun. It's a company, small, small company, like a hundred people. And I did that and. Uh, you know, spent three years there really kind of building that team, turning it around, same kind of idea, which is all about culture shaping, culture building, coaching, uh, setting strategy, and just making a place that I really like to go to every day and the same thing for all the other people that, that work there. And, you know, that was the first job I ever left that I loved, right? That I was just like, I love the people. I love the job. This is amazing. But then Slack called and it, when Slack called to, to, to run, you know, at the time, the ops, they're now service engineering, um, it really felt like an opportunity of a lifetime. It was, you know, just a product I loved and a company that was growing so fast. And it just seemed like these types of problems where I'm doing some degree turnarounds, um, I was starting to get relatively decent at them, but 
this was at a scale and at a speed that seemed almost mind boggling. And so I said, oh yeah, let's, let's reset the clock and really make life hard for myself again. And so I did <laughs> for some reason. Uh, yay, and jumped into the, into the Slack rocket ship and uh, have been here for about a year and a half. And same story. It's a lot of shaping and culture building and really, you know, in many ways, you know, some people would recognize it as a DevOps transformation. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. It's kind of what I think it has is its proper name, but um, I think that some days that has kind of negative connotations, just like agile or lean or DevOps, they, they oh. kind of lost their meaning. None, none of that is easy to do. Like if it were easy right. to do, you wouldn't need to bill it as some kind of big transformation. It would just happen. Right. Right, right, right. So it's, it's been great. You know, it's been a, it's been a, a long journey. I, you know, from my early days of managing when I was young and arrogant and getting fired a couple of different <laughs> times, uh, you know, it, cause you learn, you know, like when you start, you have all the answers. I had all the answers. Like I knew how to do it and I, and I wanted everybody to do it. Just, I wanted them to do it my way. And you know, Wait, it, it, I have to stop you. <laughs> Are you going to say you grew out of this? This is terrifying. No, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think at some level we all don't completely grow out of it, but you kind of learn to grow patient. You know what I mean? You know, you, you learn to understand that there are multiple ways to, to kind of proverbially skin the cat and to get where you're going to go. And that for every two steps forward, you're likely to take a step back. And I think that, you know, it, progress is the only kind of thing that you're looking for. It's like, as long as we're making progress, we know sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast. And you really are relying on other people. And the fundamental act of management, of being asked to be a leader is like, okay, I'm trusting you with this responsibility to deliver value, right? And I think a lot of us who do leadership and management understand that fundamental unit. But then there's the second component about how do you do that? Because I've seen a lot of very effective, very authoritative, you know, dictatorial leaders who deliver results. And... Some would argue that's unsustainable. And sometimes I've actually seen it just work forever and ever. But I have an ethos that says that it's not just my, my basic charter to deliver results, but it's also the environment that I'm creating around me that people come to work. It's a huge responsibility. Like your family and like your job, I think, are the two most important influences on your mood on a given day when you come home, right? And so as a leader shaping a, a workplace, I feel like a tremendous amount of responsibility for that. So I think that I've changed to be a little bit more macro, um, a lot, actually a lot more macro, especially as my career has gone on. And you've got to scale. <laughs> yeah. And so I want to ask, I mean, Dusty, there's some, some themes in that for when you were brought in to sort of, uh, I mean, it sounds like you're not often brought in to be the first ops guy and then fix all the ops things. You're brought into existing teams and said, hey, how do we modernize? How do we improve? How do we get this to a sustainable, yeah. scalable? whatever. And so you've kind of done this at multiple different places. What are you, when you look back on these things, what are you proud of in, in maybe the, you know, it may be one time at one company or, or in the theme of this, you know, the several different times you've done it, what do you feel like you've done well uh, that you look back on pleased with? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it, the difference is like in my early management career, it's really a, a drive to results. Like I want to win. And I'm going to deliver those results. And so the people that are part of the process are, are instruments in that, but they're not fundamental, right? And the, the pivot when you're really trying to change culture is the focus on the actual humans there and how they approach their jobs so that they can be successful. And so I think 
for me, if you look at like the three different places I've been, that what's interesting is that a lot of my networking contacts and people that I stay in touch with who have developed their own leadership careers are coming from those gigs versus maybe my early management gigs where I was the center of attention, right? And so I think, you know, looking looking at, you know, the last two gigs and then even looking at Slack, it's, I feel like there's a whole group of people who own a workplace and own a work system that they feel in control of, that they feel like they are effective at, that potentially, you know, you could say, hey, uh, you know, you architected that, but really I was just shepherding, I was coaching, right? Like, I'm not playing the game, I'm not the one who's actually doing the work, I'm drawing on the clipboard and I'm providing advice, but ultimately they're doing the work. And if you look at that, I, I feel like there's this theme of sustainable, kind of very uh, metrics focused, kind of uh, approach to your job on a daily basis that really makes people feel better about their about their work. And it doesn't mean that everybody loves the, the kind of dusty way, right? I mean, there's definitely people who, who get it and people who don't. And I think at some level you have to be okay with, you know, your style or your system of management and know that there's some people who will really vibe with it and, and really thrive and others who just don't get it at all. I think there are times when... That kind of raises ahead, the question of like whether there is... Um there's it seems like there's a place for both this sort of i need my management style to work at scale i need it to optimize to work for as many people as possible i need for this to work across a larger organization versus right. more sort of artisanal approach which is something i have tended to favor which is to identify certain people who need a particular style of, of management and then optimize for that so they can be really right. productive do you feel like there's is that something that's really overt in, in any company, I've not really thought about it that way before. Like yeah, the idea uh, you have to optimize for everybody, and if you if a few people slip through, what are you going to do? You know, yeah, I, it, you know. It, it, that there's a peril in that kind of thinking that starts to dehumanize people because they don't yeah. agree with you. So you have to be careful there. But I, I think that I've given leaders the you know the advice or the the kind of um, coaching that says you can't have too narrow of an appeal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there, there was an old manager coaching way back when when I was like looking at different people and one was like Michael Scott. And, like, why is he a good leader? Why is he a bad leader? Or you look at a coach like Jim Harbaugh or you know what I mean? Like intense, amazing, but very narrow appeal. Like if you're not aboard, on board with that human, then you are out. If you're not so quite true, like, then, they're, they're, you, then you do not appreciate Michael Scott. How intense you must you be? Yeah. That's right. So I think, I think some of it directly relates to your intensity around your mission, but I, I, I think it's important for leaders to have, have a say, have a take. You know, I, I don't really, I, I'm a great kind of software and engineering leader. I don't really see myself as like an abstract leader of humans that can do it in any industry because I feel like I need to have a take and I need to have a vision for like how this can be done well based on all my experience in a way that not only delivers value to the company, but gives back to the lives of the humans that are provided, right? And I, I think that balance is really challenging and, and it takes a certain amount of domain expertise. And I guess that's where I'm thinking because sometimes we all talk about, I've been reading blog posts recently about how the perils of doing people management, you lose your technical skills, you get so focused on people management, you're like unemployable. But I, I do think that we retain all of this experience and understanding, just like a, a former player of a game and then the coach, like you, you have this perspective and you have a take, you have a style and a way to approach problems that in your system produces results. But I do think it has to have some appeal beyond just the most narrow set of zealots 
who believe in you. And I think that's probably my early career required you to be a zealot, really to be thriving. And I think I've learned to kind of widen my, my, my perspective more and more and more on the type of people that fit within the so-called system. Yeah. And I also think that that sort of zealotry, I mean, you, you mentioned this briefly while you were talking about your past here, but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you said something about, um, you know, wanting to, you were offered this opportunity to lead and you were like, well, if I don't do it, someone else will, will do it. And I want it to be done the way that I want it to be done. And I feel as though a lot of us, there's like a category of folks who are in leadership roles who are, who have spent our entire careers slowly chipping away at the control freak aspect of our leadership right. instincts, right? Like right. we want things to be done well. That's why we're in charge. It's not because we want to be in charge. It's because the thing needs to be done well. You know, and you can lead up into I am arrogant and I think I'm the only one who can do it right. Uh, but I do feel like you and I, Dusty, have that in common and that we want the thing to be done right and that it's important that we chip away at that aspect of, you know, there are people around us and they need to benefit from our leadership as well, not just the project. Totally. And, and you know, go ahead, Kevin. No, no, well, no. I was just going to say. Well, I was going to say, I was thinking about it and, you know, we often talk about, especially in the software industry, about like managers are, are cold from the, the, the most productive or most successful developers is, and, and, and what are the perils in that? And I think mm -hmm. that fundamentally, again, you go back to the act of like, when I need a manager, I want someone to lead humans. What do I want? I want success from that person. And so the most, like, to me, it just, it's simple math. Like the person who is most successful at delivering value seems likely to be the person who's also going to, you know, be a force multiplier and produce success from this group of people. And, you know, all of the kind of human disconnects that occur there, I think mm -hmm. that that's how a lot of people start is that they're very successful. There's very few people who fail miserably at delivering any software at all who then get like asked to be a manager, right? And it is possible from very evolved organizations who really, you know, grok the difference between the two professions. But I think the overwhelming majority of people who get into like engineering leadership are very successful engineers. And so they have a take, they have a way that they used to do things. And, and that's, I think the struggle in their early career is realizing that, wow, there's a lot of other successful engineers who do it very differently than I do. And yeah, but then you have to watch out for a scenario with when you're doing that, where you've, you've brought someone who was a great engineer into a role as a leader. And then that person does a pretty great job for a short amount of time. There's like a time uh, component to this you have to worry about as well. Like they're successful for a year before they, it turns out that they were totally toxic and drew, drove right. off a bunch of relationships that, that you'd built with your the other teams or something. But then they're like, oh, well now I'm a manager and I'm off to the next company and nope, I didn't get any bad reviews. Right. And you see that kind of thing happen a lot where they're like, oh, I thought this was success. Well, you are you planning for short term success or long term right. success? Is the right. short term success worth a long term failure? And uh, I think as you move up the chain, as you move the chain and, 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 and like the, the proverbial management chain and you do VP or director work and your job is to hire those managers and train them. I think it's like, and I take it, my, you know, those people are the humans fulfilling the contract. You know, I have put forth this vision for a sustainable kind of humane workplace. And that only occurs because of the leadership who are on the front line, right? And so when you hire those people, I'm personally responsible for exactly that, Rachel, right? You know, are those humans taking a sustainable long-term approach or are they just squeezing out the short-term results? I, I, we all need victory no matter what. Like we need results as part oh, yeah, of the fundamental totally. component. But I think the you know good senior leaders understand that long-term vision counts and, and long investment and long-term sustainability of, of your kind of of your teams is 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 equally important as the short-term gains. And I 
I've told people before that, especially in these kind of turnaround type, when I, when I first engage with a company, I will often sacrifice a lot of short-term credibility as far as like, well, Dusty's not changing much in order to, what I think, set the conditions for long-term health. And I think that maybe Kendall thinking about it, that's probably what I'm most proud of is that, you know, there's often those like first year or six months of working with me where it's like, what is, what's really happening? And then eventually all of a sudden pieces start to fit together and, and, and the, you know, everyone gets aligned and then you really have the sustainable engine. Yeah, and I think the, I mean, one, one thing I want to highlight that you, you said in passing, but that, I mean, I think that managers struggle with one of two things. And one is like, I have a leadership style and it's going to rub some people wrong, right? And, and right. being comfortable with that is important. But like you said, it, it also has to have wide appeal. You can't say, well, I'm an asshole and people either like working with assholes or they don't, you know? But yeah, right. that shockingly happens so much, amazingly much, right? Have you not all, like both of you have seen this over and over. Why? Yeah, Does, well, why is that so easy? <laughs> well, and, and to tell you the truth, I mean, I, I think it's even more important as you're trying to create opportunities for people in this business, you, you know, traditionally just didn't have that chance. And and to do that, you really have to challenge what feels comfortable and what is appealing to you and what, how you appeal to other people and become even more flexible. And, you know, that's been a big focus over the, over the years. I think, you know, it's, it's gotten a name as far as diversity and inclusion recently. I think in my life, I've felt compelled to bet on the underdog, so, so to speak, like give people chances. It feels like that's true in my career, but it really only has really been given a name and, and, a, and a personal focus on my own mission in the last, I would say, five five years or so. And so I think it's, you know, when you talk about having a broad appeal and understanding like you, your own kind of distortion field and, and, and how it affects people, you just have to be aware of what that does to, and, and, and what that could do in ways that you don't even understand to other people. And I think that related to just having more appeal in order to like make this workplace feel safe and inviting for lots of different people from different backgrounds, I think the same thing's true for being aware of power differential. Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard for me as a human being to really realize how people perceive me in a meeting or in a conversation. And I think you have to kind of really understand and be very careful about, you know, just conscious of, of that interaction because people won't tell you that they are feeling that differential or that that's influencing their kind of emotions in any way. They never do, but it's totally happening. And so I think, that goes to this like self-conscious awareness thing that I think leaders, I, and I wish I knew when I was younger, but now as I'm older, I, I definitely understand my responsibility to be way more self-conscious yeah. about what clarify, I'm saying. To clarify for folks who don't really, because uh, we, we brought up this concept of power differential without really defining it, but basically the idea is if you're the boss of someone and uh, you have the power to fire them or maybe get them fired somehow higher up in the organization, there's a power differential between you and that person. And um, when you expect your employees and folks who are lower than you in the organization to engage with you without any kind of understanding of security, that's where you're, that's how you're misunderstanding a power differential. So I just wanted right. to find that because we didn't really talk about it before diving into the right. subject. But yes, it's, it's like a, it's hard to understand. Well, yeah, I am in charge of you. And therefore, um, when you talk to me, you have that feeling, whether you are aware of it or not. Um, yeah, the leadership can be such a lonely place, right? And so it's very common for managers to to reach out and to try to joke around and to try to be one of the gang. And, you know, when she's doing that, you know, she's 
you know, leaping past that power differential in a way that like being a peer in that social group is not the same thing. Right. And so mm -hmm. you just have to be conscious of it, I think, you know, as a leader. Which yeah, yeah. interesting just about that. Uh, <clears throat> something that I chew on regularly is, you know, there's times where I'm hanging with my coworkers and it's really nice that the boss just came and hung out and they're a person and we can joke with them. And there's other times where I'm hanging out with people and it's really nice that the boss isn't there so we can just let our guard down and like, and goodness, I wish there was a formula for this, like 40, 20. So I just know how much to participate. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's just make yourself like available and, and make yourself accessible, but you know, I would say, you know, you're never going to know, you can't decide what's appropriate and what's not. It's really about the person who's receiving it. And so be cautious about what you're inviting yourself to. Yeah. Yeah. I've always made the argument that I need plausible deniability when, I mean, at, at previous companies that I've worked at that have had some kind of outrageous cultures in terms of things consumed on the premises or, you know, behaviors engaged in what might not be considered okay at work. I just have to be like, uh, okay, well, I'm glad you're all having a really great time, but I'm leaving because right. I should not be around to tell anyone about what was going on here. Bye. Right. <laughs> I don't know well, if that kind of thing happens as much these days. Seems plausible. Young people yeah, are young people. Yeah. I think it depends on what, what kind of company you work at. There's, there's all kinds of dysfunction everywhere if you just look hard enough. But yes. uh, yeah, well, so yeah, sure. al along those lines, let's go on to the next question here. And Dusty, I mean, do you have uh, do you have something right now? Like, what's a leadership issue that you're dealing with right now that you're just kind of wrestling with or or starting to sort through? I think the the, the interesting thing about working at Slack is just the speed with which things move. I don't think that the problems you face are particularly like super unique. I'm not trying to. You know, the, the technical challenges of things like, let's say, atomic broadcast or some of the technical challenges are tough, especially at a global scale, but it's not like self-driving cars or teaching the computer to sing. Um, <laughs> you like that Maisel reference? That was pretty good, wasn't it? Nice. Um, but, but it is just really the speed and ambition with which the company is moving. And so what ends up happening is, you know, you're doubling every six months. You're consistently looking to kind of make sense out of your organization and reorganize it. And so you're always trying to meter change in a way that humans can tolerate. I have this kind of thesis that human beings have a finite kind of tolerance for change, period. And I, obviously it varies from human to human, but there's some incompressible space where people get really uncomfortable if you start churning that fast. At least that's been my experience. And in environments like this, it really tests that boundary kind of consistently. And so I think for me, it is how do I communicate really effectively and clearly um, in a way that helps people understand and know that change is coming and when is it appropriate and, and, and staying up with it. You know, right now, I think, you know, it's a reorg, it feels like every year, right? And that'll slow down over time. But it's making sure that people understand what their job is, that they know how to be effective, that they don't feel disconnected from the whole when, you know, 50 people are starting every day type thing. I mean, that's very hard to feel connected to the team. And so I think hyper growth companies are pretty rare and that's why I've jumped at the chance to try one, but um, they definitely have some unique challenges there. And I feel like that's probably the, the toughest challenge of, of, of managing in this kind of really, really fast growing environment that, has this unbelievable success, but it, you know that creates its own challenges. Is it, you, can, oh, go ahead, Kendall. Thank you, thank you, Rachel. <laughs> um, 
No. Um, is it making you, Dusty, want to always, like, have you caught the hypergrowth bug and you never want to work at another company that's not hypergrowth? Or is it making you go, wow, this is really interesting learning and I never want to have to do this again? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, because I, I think at some level it is the same, you know, because you mentioned that I, I rarely kind of join like a startup as like, let's say, operator number one. I'm typically coming and have got some kind of brand as a turnaround person. And so I'm coming to these established companies and trying to help them make sense of things. And it really is the same thing, meaning whether it's Baby Center, Life360, or now Slack, that first year of trying to establish what are our principles, what are our, what's our overall vision, and then doing the really hard work of hiring and recruiting the right people to make it happen is just a year of hard work, whether it's at Slack, it doesn't really matter where it is. And so I don't think I ever get used to that first year. Um, I'm now out of that first year at Slack and, you know, momentum seems to be building. And so I'm, you know, if you asked me maybe six, eight months ago, I'd be like, uh, no, thank you. But now it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is great. This is awesome. It's not great, but it's awesome. Right. So, um, you develop those things where you forget and forget how much pain you were in. This is, I hear that it's like that when you have children, that the woman, yes. uh, the biology is such that you, you have this this uh, chemical pumped into your brain that makes you forget how awful it was to give birth. It's oh, yeah. like that. <laughs> so, and I think I, I think as a human being, for whatever, like if I did my own armchair psychology analysis, I think when I get to a point where I feel like it's fixed, I'll go look for another problem to solve, which goes back to kind of my roots of like I like to take things apart, I like to fix them. That's just kind of the nature of, of who I am. And it used to be computers, but now it feels like organizations, right? And so um, I imagine at some point in Slack's life, I'll either change roles into a place that requires me to fix something or I'll find the next big thing. But I mean, having the opportunity to work at a company like Slack is just, uh, I'm just lucky, really, all it is, Kendall. I mean, it's just like, it's a it's a gift. And if somebody said, would you like to join another super hyper successful company? Yeah, that would be fantastic if that's all you could do. But like, they they tend to be rare. The, so, I mean, along those lines, my my second daughter was born 10 pounds, 10 ounces. She was not small. And it was a um, intense experience to use the lightest word I can think of to describe it. And uh -huh. three weeks later, I remember my wife saying, I could do this again. And my response being, were you not there in the room? <laughs> right. Did you not That's see what, what just happened? About. Yeah, and, and so I'm going to say this to you, Dusty, when whatever, whatever's next comes along, I'm going to corner you and be like, do you not remember? The Don't suffering. You remember? No, I mean, I, I, and, and honestly, and I do rem I, I remind myself that like when it's really hard that, I, you know, it was hard last time as well. And so I think you just, you have to have, I mean, if you do it a couple times, you start to build more confidence that, through the, through the choppy waters, you can hold onto the rudder and just kind of find your way to the other side. Um, and I feel more and more that way, but you know, it, it, there definitely is a time frame, especially in the early days where there's a lot of chaos and people are trying to figure out who you are and, 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 and what's your mission. And, and it's just, it's very confusing and a little turbulent, but it settles down and, and like yeah, to your point, yeah, you forget in a hurry, you forget in a hurry. <laughs> well, I wanna ask you um, something a little, uh, a little bit more esoteric. What about your relationship with authority? What What is your relationship with authority? Do you feel good about having authority over others? And also, how do you feel about folks having authority over you? What do you consider in those situations? Um, I think great leaders are super reluctant to kind of assume and wield authority, right? So I, I would say that my relationship with my own authority is this kind of deep sense of responsibility and sleeplessness about am I am I doing the right thing with it? Am I 
fulfilling the mission that I, you know, it, I, I think I talked about it before. Like, I feel like there's a contract that I put forward to the employees and I typically gets established when I recruit and I tell people what it's like to work at Slack or someplace where I'm, I'm managing. And I, and, and, and is that true for them on a daily basis? Right. And so for me, you know, all the kind of authority that's been get granted to me is really intended to kind of make sure that that is happening. And, and then at the second and, and, and doing the type of leadership I'm doing now is like, are the people that I've hired wielding their authority in a way that is serving, you know, their team and, and ultimately the company results because uh, one begets the other. But yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's a certain degree of, uh, of, of doubt in the power of singular authority that makes some leaders are really good. And I certainly have that. Um, I think what's interesting about that is that there's a breed of, of, of managers and I tend to be friends with them that are so-called expensive to manage. So like I would be considered probably expensive to manage because I have strong feelings about what leadership means and, and, and principles around it. And so, you know, when authorities wielded over me, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm thinking about that a great deal. And, um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, it, I think it all, it gets rooted in this kind of questioning, this self doubt of like, am I doing this right? So say more about what you mean by expensive to manage. I think it's it's this idea of um, you know the the people you know I will question a lot of uh, authority around me right and um, I've learned you know one of the most important relationships you have and that's I think relatively fine with your boss I hope that's fine with your boss otherwise maybe look at where you're working Another boss, but yeah, yeah right <laughs> but where, where that really gets I think where you have to learn is with your peers. Right. And so um, your relationship with your peer leaders is really an important and, and tricky part of your path to, to, to successful leadership and management. And what what ends up happening is that you, you have to really develop a profound respect for the kind of diversity of the way that different people manage and going back to everybody's got their style. And sometimes that style, this you don't recognize it as correct. Right. And you have to kind of come to terms with that and allow people to have the space to do their job well and still have a relationship with them so that, you know, the collective whole can be productive. And I think that early in my career, my concepts of authority and my concepts of leadership were relatively narrow. And so if I felt like you were doing it wrong, you were going to hear from me. And ultimately that creates discord within the management team and you become expensive to manage, right? Because you're not creating harmony. But you know, I think it's a, it's a delicate balance. Nobody wants a yes person. Nobody wants someone who just ignores when something really bad or, or inappropriate or, you know, horrible is going on. You should speak up and advocate for people, but um, you have to be able to kind of manage those peer relationships. And I think that that is that healthy tension between questioning authority, but also honoring the kind of autonomy of other leaders. So like a peer relationship situation would be maybe where, you know, someone who works for you, is is trying to work on something with the employee of a peer in the organization mm -hmm. and they are having some kind of problem and so your employee comes to you and says can't you you know talk to this person's boss and so you're kind of stuck with that and and having having a good relationship with those folks is is uh crucial there is that the kind of thing you're talking about and it's then if you done. don't have a good relationship with those folks then your boss right. finds you both hard right. to manage you just have to work really hard at it right like first of all you have to model it at the highest level, right? So I have to have great relationships with the leaders and other organizations. And so that I'm modeling how we collaborate and cooperate and respect the kind of 
you know, individuality and autonomy of other groups and the importance of them. Um, it's in software, I feel like um, software developers tend to overinflate their importance in the overall process, right? And so part of the process is helping them understand that, hey, QA and design and sales, even sales are important <laughs> to the company, right? Like all of these parts are legitimate human beings who have different orgs and different ways of working, but it, it, it's part of the whole package that creates success. And so I think if you have that relationship with the leaders, then your directive orgs usually reflect the leader. Um, and it, that conversation becomes much easier. Where that becomes like a total discord or disconnect is if that person knows that you've been bad-mouthing some other leader, right? And then they come and talk to you and now you've got to deal with it, right? Because what are you going to say? Like, oh, you just have to get along? Well, you said that, you know, blah, 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 right? So I, I think it's, you have to be disciplined. You have to realize that, you know, it takes a village to kind of run a company, especially a company that's moving really fast and your org kind of falls in line. It takes a village to run a company and San Francisco is a little bit bigger than a village. And that's why it's, it's has so much tech in it is, mm -hmm. I don't I'm, I feel like I'm drawing conclusions that don't necessarily <laughs> mind. So wait, so you, you mentioned briefly about your, your view on authority when you were younger. I mean, you, yeah. you were a coach from early on. So, and I imagine I had an opinion of coaches. You played baseball or something growing up, if I remember correctly, or what were you? I played water polo in high school and college. So I was like way off, but uh, like yeah, not there's a the ball. Round. Yeah, there's <laughs> a ball. There's a ball. But uh, yeah, so so like how how has that? Just talk about how you thought about authority when you were younger, especially yeah. coaching. Coaching is interesting. I think um, the most eye-opening moment I had as a coach um, about coaching that I think informed my management life was the concept of a timeout. So everyone's watched sporting events and this happens at little tiny kids, like eight-year-old peewee basketball all the way up to professional football, where something's not happening or there are results that are occurring that are not good for a given team. And so the natural inclination is the coach calls timeout. Like that's a universal thing, right? But the behavior inside that timeout is really interesting. And what I watched over and over again, both myself and others, was that a coach would whip out a clipboard and they would furiously be drawing plays and draw this and they would be talking to their players and, no, oh, do this and go over here and what about this and blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, the, the players would all be sitting there staring and not saying a word and they would all nod and they would go back out and probably turn the ball over. And, you know, the success rate of like, I started tracking what's the success rate of timeouts where I'm telling my team what to do. And it was really low. Right. And so I've thought about that. And so I just changed it. And I said that the timeout, I would bring the team in and I would, wouldn't say anything. I would just ask the team, Hey, what's going on out there? What do you see? And the team would start saying, well, I saw this and this is what's happening. And you know what you realize, Oh wow. My perspective sitting on the deck watching this game versus being in the game is very different than what's happening for them. And the combination of listening to what they have to say and then me saying, well, this is what I see, the, the success rate was up huge. It was less than 50% to about 60 or 70% as far as like what I would say is objective improvement. And so I think that the key there was this idea of kind of fervent and, 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 and voracious instruction in the, in the face of adversity is, is a instinctual kind of thing. And we see it and it's part of our lives, we, probably in school and sports, it's all around us. And it's, it's paradoxical, you know, the, the, in those moments of crisis is the time where you need to listen to the, to the people who are on the front lines who are actually experiencing yeah. the thing. And your, your chances of results when you do that go way up. 
Yeah, stop and gather intel. <laughs> yeah, it makes me want to call timeouts at work. Just, just uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll like interrupt a sales call. Timeout. Yeah. Why, why <laughs> I, have, uh, I have not been able to effectively introduce the whistle in the workplace. I've, I've tried, <laughs> but it doesn't work. You know. <laughs> what about a commercial break? Does that work? Wait. A commercial break. Time out. Time out. Bundle up. Bundle up. Yeah. I think that's what like you know offsites are supposed to be kind of like that, right? Yeah. You know? right. And that's interesting because offsites are often like a whole day of you sitting there listening to someone talk over slides, wah 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 wah, right. and and I could totally see the same thing. We did this great thing at a previous company uh, every quarter. I was part of the uh, field org at that company, and then we had you know the products org. Uh, also part of these quarterly offsites, and we would report to each other every quarter. The the field the field org sales and and customer success and stuff would report to the field to the product org about here's what we're learning about the field, and they would sit and listen, and then we'd switch back and forth. And so right. then the product org would say, well here we heard you, and here's what we're doing. What do you think about that? Yeah. And we would have this great back and forth. And I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about writ large. Yeah, well, it feels like your responsibility as a leader. Like, it, if you're to get out of the sports metaphor and into the offsite, which I thank you, that's a much better example. Um, that has wider appeal to just tie all the threads together. Um, you know, you, as a manager, you, you feel this pressure. Like, I need to deliver something to my team as part of this offsite. I need to, I need to do something, right? I need to come with a vision. I need to hire the Arbinger Group to do, like, you know, an exercise. Teach them, yeah. Right. I need to teach them, and the reality is actually you need them to teach you, and that's. That's a really odd kind of, like I said, a counterintuitive way of thinking of it, but it's super duper effective. Super No, mm -hmm. yeah, that's very cool. I, and I have an offsite, an all company kickoff coming up in just two days and I have to give a presentation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that to heart. So it's one cool. slide. Why don't you just tell me what you what you think? You know? yeah. <laughs> Literally, case in point for why slides should never be prepared uh, in advance. Right. Totally. Here. That's We're right. Just gonna do them right, like five minutes before the thing. Yeah. The ultimate right. judo move. There you go. Well. So Dusty, we're coming up on time here, but I want to ask before we let you go: How has becoming a leader affected your personal life, positively or negatively? Uh, I mean, I think it makes me a better parent. Right. Like learning all the same things to, you know, help people feel like my kids have this sense that, that I'm paying attention and that there's some degree that I care and that there's some accountability, I guess, for like decisions they make because they need to know that there's this feedback. But there's also the sense of like, hey, yeah, my kids are teenagers, so the, the, the time has come for them to make choices. Right. And I think that for me, I think I'm really happy with like how my kids have developed and, and their sense of self and their ability to kind of make some choices and to screw up. And that's part of the process. And, um, I, you know, I, and, and I think that I'm, it, it's just, I, I love to do it. I love to, you know, this, this idea of, I love I love to making things with software, or, but now you're making things that you couldn't even dream of doing by yourself. And you're doing that by just helping align very you know, large organizations and, that's that's hard and oftentimes very frustrating and uh, i don't know how many blog posts about management that tell you don't do it it's a terrible nightmare um and maybe that's true some days but like when it works man there's nothing better <laughs> now if uh if money were no object what would you be doing with your life oh that's easy i go back to coaching high school water polo really oh, that's yeah. awesome <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow it's, it's my 
Would you uh, my, place? Yeah, I used to coach at my alma mater high school in the East Bay, so I would probably go back there. You'd, you'd prefer that over professional? <laughs> well, professional water polo would be in Europe, which would be kind of cool. And I think there's one in Australia, but yeah, no, I love high school. High school is the best. It's just, it's the time frame of, you know, really formative time for these people. And you can get, you talk about getting people riled up and, and aligned and just like ready to go. Like a group of uh, high school boys and girls are just, they're just so enthusiastic when they get going. And so it's just a lot of fun. Awesome. It's, it's a serious sport too. You have to be built out of something pretty intense to survive that. But uh, yes. well, so Dusty, where can people find you on the internet? I think the best way to find me is on Twitter. Dusty P uh, is my handle on Twitter and hit me up there. Cool. Thank you very much for coming on today and talking with us. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, everybody. Take care.